So I'm not good at patience. I'm not good at enduring. I'm not good at waiting. And so let me just give you one of many examples in my life. Just last week, I ordered three books from Amazon, one of which was Prime and two of which were not. I got the Prime book just like two days later. And every single day since I made that order, I was looking at the mailbox for those other two books, sort of expecting that the not prime status was kind of a fluke, you know, and that it would actually come in two days. It didn't. And it just, I kept waiting. And every single day I went to the mailbox, I got more and more frustrated with a week-long delivery of a book. And that's a book, okay? That's a book. That's a book in my life. Just, just think and consider for a minute what that means about my walk with God. Uh, my counselor once told me, Joe, he said this to me, okay? Not necessarily saying this to you. He said this to me. He said, Joe, resolution is overrated, man. Because what he saw in me is he saw in me a discomfort with untidiness. He saw in me a discomfort with things not being utterly and completely resolved with a bow on top. I get so unnerved in those situations, in those tensions. I have trouble waiting. My favorite new writer, Tish Warren, she says this. She says, Christians are people who wait. We live in liminal time, in the already not yet. Christ has come. And he will come again. We dwell in the meantime, she writes. We wait. But in my daily life, I've developed habits of impatience, of speeding ahead, of trying to squeeze more into my cluttered day. I love this line. How can I live as one who watches and waits for the coming kingdom when I can barely wait for water to boil? Amen? We are not good at patient endurance. In fact, some theologians wonder if impatience is the root of all of our issues. Some theologians look at the scriptures and they say, I wonder if impatience is the root even of sin. Think about it. We want things on our terms. We want things on our timing. And we have an unwillingness to wait and to trust that God's timing and God's ways are the best timing and the best way. So we grasp, like Jacob in the Old Testament, we grasp and we get impatient. This is our struggle. Um, and John, John here who writes Revelation, he is sensitive to this struggle. Remember, John is a friend and a follower of Jesus. He touched Jesus. He saw Jesus. He knows what Jesus smells like. He saw glory with his own eyes in Jesus. And then after Jesus dies and is risen, he spends his life pastoring and pointing people to Jesus. He is a faithful witness to who Jesus was and to what that means. And how does he get rewarded for this faithful witness? Well, he tells us in verse 9. He says, I'm your brother and your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. Now, just a quick aside. This Patmos Island is not like a sands resort. Do you know what Patmos is? It's a prison island. 
And so what would happen is the Roman Empire would exile uh, sort of social misfits. They would banish them if they saw them as a misfit. And so they were removed from society and they were placed on an island like Patmos in the Aegean Sea. Away from everybody. They were like, Patmos was like a, a, a tiny version of Australia way back when. It's a prison island. It's a way of getting people out of society. And so John, he's this faithful witness and he says, Hey, I'm a faithful witness on account of the word of God and on account of my witness to Jesus. I am now here exiled. Think of this. John, who heard Jesus say, actually heard with his ears. He heard Jesus say, I will give you life abundant. And now here he is like, like, like Luke Skywalker. I just saw Last Jedi in the first 30 minutes. He's like Luke Skywalker on this island. Completely exiled. On the one hand, John personally knows the king of the universe. And here's the tension. You ready? On the other hand, some puny Roman governor exiles him to him. And so for John, life was an untidy combination of cross and crown. Of tribulation and kingdom. Suffering and joy. Well, so John is not unique. Okay, so in verse 9, take a look. John says, I am your brother and your partner. In three things. He says, I'm your brother and your partner in this tension. If you are in Christ, John promises you these things. Kingdom blessings and cross-shaped setbacks. Do you see it in the text? I'm your partner in tribulation or cross-shaped setbacks and the kingdom. Kingdom blessings. Knowing Jesus as king and experiencing his kingdom rule. And so he is in this tension. He says, I'm not alone. You are, if you are in Christ, do you see it? Towards the end of verse 9, all who are in Christ, all who are in Jesus, then you are called to do this. Now, how are you to survive this tension? Well, John says we share in a third thing. What is it? Do you see it? Say it aloud. Patient endurance. Patient endurance. So patient endurance. In fact, I think the entire book of Revelation was written to help us with that phrase. Patient endurance. John is saying, I am a partner with you in the kingdom and in the tribulation. In the kingdom blessings that Jesus is king and in the sufferings that you experience day to day. And because of that, I am also your partner in patient endurance. And the way this works, I'll just lay out for you. And that's what we have in the book of Revelation. It's written to help us patiently endure the agonizing tension between kingdom certainties and cross-shaped setbacks. And the way that he does this is by overwhelming our senses. Uh, John, in this text, and in all of Revelation, gives us what William Dyerness calls a visual faith. Did you know that there is no theological truth in the book of Revelation 
that you couldn't get somewhere else in the Bible? Revelation presents truth that we already know in our brains. But visually. With image. Why? So it sticks. When life is hard, we forget ideas. But we recall images. I know this is true. Some of you, you don't remember a lick of what I preach, but if I had a story or an image from like even eight years ago, you'll remember that. It's how we work. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows this. In fact, Jesus says in verse 10, he says to John, he says, write down what you see and now give it away to the church who's struggling, who's living in this tension that you are. Give it to them. See, Jesus knows that for us to persevere, we need more than a doctrine of suffering. For us to patiently endure, we need to, here's the word, behold Jesus. Not just see him, behold him. Like seeing is like hearing, beholding is like listening. And we need to behold Jesus. And that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm not going to over-explain what John gives us this morning. I think that would be against the point. What we're going to do is we're going to, we're, we're going to let this depiction of Jesus confront us. Run over us. Disorient us, comfort us. And I predict that you will not learn anything new this morning about Jesus that you don't already know. But what my prayer is about this morning is that you will encounter Jesus in a way that helps you endure. So, first, behold Jesus as King, as the King of Kings, as the ruler of rulers, as the president of presidents, as the Supreme in your heart. There are five images in our passage that tells us that Jesus rules as king over all things. And when I say all things, I mean all things. You can recall right now into your heart something that's going on that just creates tension in, in the core of who you are. Recall that and now consider that Jesus stands over that. Who does John see? He sees someone like the Son of Man. In verse 13. So in Daniel 7, 13 through 14, Daniel has a vision, sort of like John does, uh, very much like John does, actually. And here's what he says. He says, behold, there's that word, behold. Okay. So apparently this is what, this is what you do when you get a vision from God. You behold it. So, so Daniel 7, 13 says, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. And he, there's that word, son of man. And, and he came to the ancient of days, God himself, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is that son of man. 
the king of all kings. In fact, before that vision that Daniel is given, there are four beasts, and these beasts represent the most powerful kingdoms in our world. And Jesus stands over them. Jesus has white hair. He has white hair in this image. It says in verse 14, the hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. White hair, can I get an amen in a minute? Represents wisdom in the Bible. White hair represents age, and because of that, wisdom. The Ancient of Days, in the image that we just heard from Daniel, has wool white hair. The eternality of Jesus should confront you and comfort you. The wisdom of Jesus. Jesus has eyes of fire. He has eyes of fire. Just later in verse 14, you see it. His eyes were like flame of fire. In the Bible, the presence of God is always depicted by fire. Uh, So the author of Hebrews says this, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must give an account. Jesus has feet of bronze. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. So here's a combination of strength and beauty. Because in that day, bronze was used for weaponry, strength. And yet it's burnished and refined. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. So you have this, this image of, of beauty and of strength. Strength and beauty create awe. Well, Jesus is the true king who draws out our awe. Anybody who sees him. If you saw Jesus' face on that day, John says you would, it'd be like looking at the sun. If you look at the end of verse 16, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And new heavens and new earth, it says that we won't even need the sun because of his glory. Because of his radiant face. These images are meant to overwhelm you. They're meant to be unforgettable. They're meant so that you would say to yourself, I cannot unsee this. So that when you are experiencing the tension of the Christian life, you recall who Jesus is. My favorite character in the Chronicles of Narnia is Reepicheep the Mouse. Do you know Reepicheep? Do you know this mouse? Let me just see if I have this. There he is. He's a talking mouse. And as you read the Chronicles of Narnia, you start to realize something about him. He will do anything for Aslan. He's a little proud. Aslan even says so. But he will do anything for Aslan. Anything. He will do anything for his glory. He will do anything for his fame. Not Reepicheep's glory. Not Reepicheep's fame. Aslan's glory and fame. Loyalty to Aslan. Listen. Made this very small creature brave. You know, the most vulnerable creature in all the Narnia characters. 
the bravest. Because he had an appropriate vision of who Aslan was. And that's what John is after this morning. He wants this image of the true king to to kindle awe in your heart. So that you too can persevere. Because here's the truth. Think about this for just a second. Whoever impresses you the most will control you. We are hardwired, in other words, to be in awe of a king. And if it's not the true king, then false pseudo-kings will come in and take our awe. And they don't deserve it. And so here's a quote by Paul David Tripp. Listen, he says, Forgetting the awesome and glorious one who made it all and holds it all together by the sheer power of his magnificent will will always insert me into the center. This means that no story will be more important to me than my story. I will ask no bigger question than the question of how am I doing? I will have no bigger concern than the satisfaction of me and my comfort. I will ask life to serve me and to submit to my interests and to deliver whatever I demand. This viewpoint, he goes on to say, will guarantee me a life of huge disappointment. Amen. And not only that, it also is an insane way to live. You and me are not the center of everything. The world does not do my sovereign bidding. And it is exhausting. This isn't him now. This is me. It is exhausting to pretend otherwise. God will not offer his awesome throne to me. Awe of self. Worship of self. Underlies every form. Of self-destructive living. So behold the true king. I want you also though. To to follow John here. Because he wants us to. Not only behold the true king. But also to behold the true prophet. In verse 16. look, Look with me. In verse 16. The voice of Jesus. So it's not just a vision. It's also audio. The voice of Jesus uh, is described as a sharp sword. And then in verse 15, his voice is described as the roar of many waters. His voice is powerful, so powerful, so powerful that John can't hear anything above it. I remember vacationing at the Niagara Falls as a, as a small child. And I don't have very many memories of vacations as a small child. But I remember walking down those rickety steps right underneath the Niagara Falls. Has anybody else done this? It's unforgettable. Because you feel like you're going to die. I mean, you really do. You're going to slip, fall off, and die. The Niagara Falls, it's just like intense. It's crazy. It's so intense. And then we got on that made of the mist boat. And I'm like, this is crazy too. This is all crazy. We're crazy, right? But the point is, that is what God's voice is depicted as in this text. When you hear the voice of many waters, don't think a babbling brook or your essential oils diffuser. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is Niagara Falls intensity, loud, roaring power.
Whenever you open your Bibles, I want you to imagine that roar. Because this is God's Word. It's sharp as a double-edged sword, yes. It's also as loud as roaring waters. It's powerful. It's unnerving at times. We think we can engage God's Word and make His Word fit into our plans and schemes, but that would be like holding your little Nalgene bottle at the foot of the Niagara Falls. I'm just going to bottle this up for my plans and my consumption. No, no. When you open the Bible, you are unleashing something that's powerful. It could change your life. What's the most impressive voice in your life right now? Honest question. When you hear it, you just do its bidding. What is the voice that you heed? Is it your own voice, your own internal critic? Perhaps it's the voice of someone in your past. Perhaps it's the voices on social media. What we need to do is we need to allow the voice of Jesus and his word and these scriptures to roar over every other voice that you hear in your life. Let me just give you one just practical tip that has helped me. Buy an alarm, like a real alarm, that still exists, and put it in your bedroom. And as Andy Crouch puts it, put your phone to bed before you go to bed. And then when you wake up with your alarm and not your phone, there's a subtle nudge to engage God's word instead of Twitter or your email or Instagram or the news feed. And what you'll do in those moments right in the morning is you will hear, you will orient yourself to God's word and his power. And that has helped me. It might help you. What else? Well, we need to behold Jesus as the true king. We need to behold Jesus as the true prophet. We also need to behold Jesus as the true priest. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. He is the perfect human. He is all of what the Old Testament points to. We see it in this text because Jesus reveals himself as priest in this passage. Take a look at his robe and his sash. He says, he turns in verse 12 at the very end, and he says, And in the midst of lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. So if you were uh, immersed in the Old Testament scriptures, as the original hearers probably were, they would have thought of one thing when they heard this outfit. High priest. Jesus is king over all things, and yet he is also priest. Why is that important? Priests brought the presence of God to people. And that's who Jesus is in perfection. He brings God to us. He is the perfect priest. He's more than a priest. He's the sacrifice as well. In fact, later, John will behold something else. He'll behold a slain lamb. And who is that slain lamb? But Jesus himself. The sacrifice that draws a God who is holy near to us is the high priest, Jesus. And that was a once and for all sacrifice, so it's done. The author of Hebrews would say, 
there no longer is a need for sacrifices. There no longer is a need for priests because Jesus came and did it all finally and perfectly. And so when John sees the king, when John sees the prophet, and when John sees the priest, he beholds grace to him. The face that shines like sun will not crush him. As we heard in the call to worship, he will not be ashamed because Jesus is priest. And what is he doing as priest? He's walking around. The imagery in verse 12 is he's walking around these lampstands. What on earth does that mean? Really, what does that mean? Well, priests would enter into the temple and tend to the lamps that were lit always. In the presence of God. So here's the idea. The idea was that God's people were like lamps. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, right? I'm gonna let it shine. That's kind of rooted in scripture. Because God's people were imagined as lights, as lamps. And what these priests would do is they would tend to these lamps. Uh, the, the idea was that, is that God's people were, by the presence of God, near the presence of God, sort of empowered and lit by Him. And so priests would constantly make sure that the lamps were burning. They were constantly walking around the lamps, refreshing the wick, refilling the oil. And so what we have in this image is we have Jesus as priest going alongside and coming alongside smoldering wicks and making sure they keep burning. And then what does he do? Well, as priest, he places his hand on John in verse 17, who is having a divine panic attack because of what he sees. He feels like he's going to die. And Jesus places his hand on him and says, don't be afraid. And here's the I am statement. I am the first and the last. There is nothing in your life, John, that is outside of me and that is outside of my scope. And the Alpha and the Omega, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. That means any word in your life is encompassed by me. Any event in your life is encompassed by me. Anything in your life is encompassed by me. Don't be afraid. This week, uh, our family is, mainly my wife and our kids, is watching our friend's garden. Uh, They're out of town, and when we look over the garden, um, I say we, mostly I'm sitting in the car watching them do this, but uh, (laughs) truth be told. But what they do, and what I hear that they do, is they they look uh, look for diseased things. They look for things that are breaking down. They look for the fruit, of course, and they pick it, but they also look for things that aren't doing so hot. And that's the posture of Jesus as priest in this text. You know, I think we, in general, think Jesus is like this headhunter in the sky who looks for excellence and then promotes. The truth is, Jesus is like a gardener priest who looks at his garden and sees where the weakness is, to see where the brokenness is. He draws near to the brokenness and to the weakness. And like a priest, he replaces the wick. He refills the oil. He makes sure that the fire is still burning. Are you burnt out? Are you burning out? Do you recognize that Jesus is more committed to your flame than you are? Do you recognize that 
that he walks among you, he draws near to you? Do you recognize that God draws near to the brokenhearted? Do you realize that a bruised reed he will not break? And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out? Behold him. Behold him. King of kings. Voice of all voices. Priest who brings you near. This is the vision you need to endure.